0: For the love of goats, we are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. This is a topic that I am really passionate about. If you've ever emailed me and said, "Why did my goat die?" you know that I've told you the only way to know for sure is to get an necropsy. And that is what we are talking about today. We are joined by Dr. Jonathan Samuelson, a clinical assistant professor of anatomic pathology at the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory in the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Samuelson.
0: Thank you. It's very good to be here. Very excited.
1: I love this topic and I'm so glad I saw an article that you wrote about necropsies and I was like, oh my gosh, this will be perfect that he can talk about this on the podcast because I think, you know, so many people want to know why their goat died and they're just asking everybody like on Facebook and stuff. And the reality is there's so many different possibilities. I learned very early on that there is just no way you can possibly guess because we had a super weird situation where a goat died and I mean, she was just laying there screaming bloody murder for a, over an hour. And then she was dead. And like, I didn't have time to do anything really. And I want to know why she died. And it turns out she had tizzers disease, which Ooh. if anybody Googles that it's a rodent disease every now and then I still check the scholarly literature and see like, has somebody written about Tizzer's and goats? And they haven't. Like nobody would have ever in a million years suggested that this goat, that any goat would die from Tizzer's disease. Like (laughs) the only reason we knew that was because we had a necropsy. And so that sold me on them right away because it was really helpful to know that. It wasn't anything that that was contagious anybody else was going to get or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So let's start at the very beginning. There are a lot of different parts to a necropsy. It's not... Just about cutting the goat open and seeing what you can find. (laughs) But that is kind of what a gross necropsy is. So can you just start there?
0: Yeah, sure. So you're right. It is kind of uh, see what we can find. There are times when I get animals presented to me, not just goats, and the clinical history that's provided by the submitting veterinarian is limited or not present at all. So you know, without a history of going forward, without some indication of what to focus on, I call those a see what we see necropsy. You know, So the gross exam is the first part, or actually the first part is the submission really. And I'm going to be comprehensive as I can. My part of the job is the necropsy, but there's been a whole series of events that have been occurring leading up to the animal dying and submission to the diagnostic lab for necropsy. So a thorough history by the veterinarian who's submitting the case is very, very helpful and allows us to kind of focus on specific areas or, you know, kind of spend more time in certain areas really, because our time is limited. You know, there's some days I have 15 necropsies to get through, you know, so that's a lot of time and I want to go home and have dinner, you know, so I need to move. So a, a, a thorough history is like where we kind of start. And then you know, once I get to my part of the job, which is the necropsy, or you can also say autopsy. So autopsy means to see for oneself and necropsy means to see after death, right? So we typically apply autopsy in human medicine and necropsy in veterinary medicine. They're pretty much interchangeable. Um, It's a postmortem examination. That's the most comprehensive, right? So the gross exam, the the word gross means kind of like your gross income, like in totality. It does not mean the gross part of the necropsy, like the repulsive part of the necropsy. Although that is the best chance you have to be repulsed is in the gross exam. And the gross exam, you know, is, is very systematic. So we don't miss anything or do our best not to miss anything. So the gross necropsy is where we do a thorough external exam, examine the ears, examine the oral cavity, look at the hooves, look at the skin, looking for any clues. So like any sort of, you know, fecal staining, you know, around the anus, maybe this animal had diarrhea, especially if we didn't have a history going into it, we kind of look for clues like that. Um, And then we'll proceed into the internal body cavities. And then again, it's very, very systematic. I tend to work from the front of the animal to the back of the animal, with the exception of the brain. I always do the brain last. And in the gross exam, we are examining gross changes. We're examining changes that we can detect with our naked eye, so that's color changes, texture changes, is something added, is something missing? These are kind of the things that we're looking for. And in the gross exam it's also where we collect the tissues required for further testing after the gross exam. So we usually collect a subset of fresh tissues. So these are tissues that are being collected and kind of put in a bag and either submitted for testing right away or being frozen for potential testing later. And then we also collect a full set of tissues, which we fix in formalin, which is formaldehyde. It's 10% formaldehyde. And what the formaldehyde does is it fixes the tissue and kind of maintains that architecture, which will allow us to trim the tissues later on in the second part that we can talk about a little bit. So the goals of the gross exam are to really characterize any macroscopic, so, you know, naked eye lesions. Um, and collect tissues move forward. And some older pathologists or more seasoned pathologists put a lot more weight in the gross exam. And there are, you know, other pathologists that will not put a whole lot of diagnostic emphasis on what they find in the gross exam, because there's a lot of things that it could be. I might see that there's something going on in the lungs, they're dark red, they're wet, they exude fluid. When I cut on into them, but it might be edema, it might be hemorrhage, it might be inflammation sometimes. So, you know, I kind of reserve judgment in, in the gross exam and wait for the full picture with the microscopy and any ancillary testing that I might have done in any given necropsy.
1: Okay. And so then once you finish the gross necropsy, what's the next step?
0: So once we're done, if I have any tests that I want to run, so I want to Perform a culture to see if there's any bacteria in a given tissue. There's lots and lots of tests (laughs) that are available to me. But the big ones are really the ones that uh, revolve around infectious organisms. So, culture, microbiology is really important. We have a a microbiology group here in the lab that does all this work for us after the fact and cultures things. Uh, We can run certain molecular tests. There's lots of different PCRs which can detect. A molecular DNA or an RNA of an infectious organism or something like that. So that's one side of what happens afterwards. There's kind of ancillary testings to detect organisms using laboratory methods. And then with the fixed tissue, the tissue that was saved in formalin, we usually let that fix overnight, right? It takes a certain amount of time for the formalin to adequately penetrate the tissues that we've collected and fully fix them. And then the next morning, I will come in and cut those small sections of tissue that I've collected from each organ into even smaller sections, and that will fit into a cassette, and it's this kind of small, you know, rectangular container that we can put flat tissues in. So we cut all the tissues in into these different cassettes, and then we submit it to the histology lab. And the histology lab performs a number of chemical treatments to it, and then they mount the tissue in wax, and then they cut very, very thin sections, like kind of paper thin, five micron thick sections. And once they get a good section, they can lay that on the microscope slide, and then they do a couple other awesome things to it, and they stain it with some different reagents, and then... You know, we can look at the tissue microscopically and examine the cellular architecture. And that part of the necropsy examination is called histopathology. So, examining for disease on a microscopic level. And I am kind of more new school. So, a lot of my definitive diagnoses come from the histopathology exam. I like to confirm what types of cells are there if it's an inflammatory response. I like to fully characterize a cancer if it's there, you know, and what types of cells are they, what are they doing, you know, and really you can only do that with histopathology. And there are some modalities that allow us to go even further. So we can use electron microscopy to examine the ultrastructure of cells, which is we're looking at mitochondria and ribosomes and nuclear contents and stuff like that. So that is kind of in a nutshell, the whole thing, but it really relies on really good communication with the submitting veterinarian and sometimes even the owners.
1: Okay. For many of the years I've had goats, I didn't have a local vet. And so I've usually submitted goats directly to the university. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so then I would wind up talking to one of your vets there Mm -hmm. and giving them the history and everything. So how do you know, like, which direction to go? Because like you said, there's so many different possibilities. Mm -hmm. What kind of guides you in terms of knowing, like, which tests to do or not do?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I try to utilize everything that's available to me. You know, everything from the history and my communications with the referring veterinarian to what I see on the gross exam you know, as far as goats go, they're production animals. So a lot of the times, the things that we're seeing in production animals are kind of respiratory disease or intestinal disease. There's lots of other things, and that's not inclusive at all. But those are the things that I focus on first off, if I don't have any history, you know, in a production animal. But really, it's the skills that I've developed over time, you know, learning from other pathologists and my mentors, there's so many of them, you know, people who have taught me over the years in kind of accumulating the knowledge and moving forward. There are times when I have to wait for the histopathology slides to come back before I make a definitive move on what I want to do for testing. That usually is the case when the veterinarian has not submitted a history with their submission. The way that this laboratory operates is when you submit for a necropsy, you have the option to select a package where you can get a certain amount of ancillary tests, and that is included in the initial fee. So it's very attractive to producers, you know, because they don't want me on the back end kind of to feel like I'm nickel and diming them and running these extra tests as we move forward. So um, I use a lot of different things to determine what I need to test. Most of it is knowledge-based and knowing what types of disease affect a given organ or specific gross or microscopic appearances of different uh, pathologic processes mostly cancers and and infectious diseases or, you know, even developmental things. Uh, So, you know, there's lots of hereditary diseases within sheep and goats as well that we kind of have to be on the lookout for from time to time.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that I think it was in 2020 that we submitted a two-week-old kid for a necropsy because she was two weeks old. And like the day before she was bouncing around nursing, acting 100% normal. Mm-hmm. And then she was dead. And the same thing had happened to a half sibling, like a Few weeks earlier and it was like oh my gosh is this something genetic because they had the same sire and it was a fairly new buck he hadn't had a lot of kids and so it really made me worry because it was just such a bizarre coincidence and so it was too late for the kid that had died a couple weeks earlier but we did submit that one and it came back saying that it was just a virus that she just had contracted a virus that had killed her oh. so Yeah, it was weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, diseases, there's so many of them. And the way that they play out, you know, there are viruses that can kill things very quickly. And the same virus might do something completely different in another animal that's generally a similar age or something like that. And when that happens, you know, you really need to think about other things, too, like the body's, the animal's response to that infectious organism, right? So a lot of times when you see, you know, acute deaths, there's either little or no immune response, right? So the virus is kind of free to move unimpeded. And this is really speaking in a general sense. If sometimes there's a partial immune response, right? So you might see something more like a chronic disease, that kind of more protracted disease course, and then they might mount a completely successful immune response and you won't see disease at all. So there's a lot to think about. It's not just the offending organism itself. It's the animal's response to that offending organism.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because it was 2020 and I had just recently been doing a ton of reading about viruses. (laughs) And I don't even remember the number anymore because there were so many zeros and commas like the number of viruses in the world is really beyond the comprehension of most of us,
0: yeah. and
1: viruses are just so funny. Like it's the kind of thing that, like, yeah, it could have affected the other goats, and their immune system just responded appropriately, and it didn't bother them at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fascinating to see that. And that's so often, whenever I've had an necropsy, I have been surprised. Mm-hmm. I rarely go, oh, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I had a doe die one time when her kids were two days old and the necropsy came back and said that she had both mastitis and pneumonia, either of which could have killed her. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, she like, you know, her udder was actually cold and floppy, mm-hmm. not hot and hard. So like mastitis, like never in a million years would I have thought mastitis. hmm
0: cold and floppy is not good either.
1: Yeah. Since doing the podcast, I mentioned that before and somebody said, mm, that sounds more like gangrenous nest. Type. Yeah,
0: right. Like, <laughs> like the, the yeah. really
1: bad one. <laughs>
0: yeah, those are hard. I see it with some frequency here. You know, we don't have a very high dairy caseload here. We get some a lot of things from the university. But when I was a kid, I grew up with dairy cows and we were milking one night and I remember the vet was there. I was very young and He actually had removed one of the cow's quarters, you know, and it was just this big, gross, bloody mess. And he was there kind of treating it. And the cow was doing fine. They're just such amazing animals. They're able to fight off infection so well, you know, or wall it off anyway and form abscesses.
1: Yeah, that is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned to you before we started recording that we had a situation recently where a 10-year-old doe gave birth to a mummified kid and a stillborn. And the science part of my brain is like, I want to know why. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the financial farmer side was like, okay, she's 10 years old. She's retired. She's never going to kid again. And this is the last Dota kid this year. So you really don't need to worry about this from a herd health perspective. So you just need to let it go.
0: That's okay. I can tell you that it would still be important for you to get a necropsy done on those kids and that placenta. Because there are infectious agents that can live within the environment, you know, and be around for next kidding season and next, you know, breeding season. So Mm -hmm. I understand where you're coming from with economic decisions and stuff like that. I'm always going to be an advocate for more knowledge, you know, (laughs) the professor at me. Right. But there are practical realities that need to be taken into account. And, you know, if it's feasible, it's feasible. If it's not, it's not. There's other things that are available to you. I mean, generally for abortions, I kind of really recommend sending the fetuses and the placenta. You know, sometimes you don't find them for a while. So the placenta has been eaten, you know, or something like that by mom. But this probably applies more to if you have a doe or a buck who dies, you know, and your veterinarian thinks that, you know, I think it's pneumonia. I'm hearing crackles in my stethoscope. And that those coughing, you know, you can have your, or you can ask your veterinarian to perform what's called uh, field necropsy. And they can do some quick things where they, you know, have really pinpointed the disease process themselves. And they can open the animal up really quickly and collect a small section of lung or do a quick examination of the lung, collect some tissue, send that into us. And then I can do the back end stuff. I can do the testing and the histopathology. You know, so it's like the referring vet is doing the gross examination and I'm doing the stuff on the back end. I think other recommendations, so like postmortem interval, the way that I instruct my clients is if you can get it to me within 48 hours, just refrigerate it and keep it cold. Because once the animal dies, there are processes that start to take place like autodigestion. It's called autolysis and putrefaction. So when, you know, environmental bacteria and bacteria within the animal already start to kind of digest the animal. And we want to avoid that as much as possible. So if you can get it to the lab within 48 hours, that usually involves driving it there or overnighting it through the mail. A lot of clinics do that as well. Then refrigeration is all that's required. If it's going to be longer than 48 hours, I really recommend that pulps freeze the animal in at least a negative 20 degrees Celsius freezer. So that's your kind of standard freezer, you know, in your kitchen. And when you freeze an animal, that induces a different type of artifact called freeze thaw artifact. So what happens with that is essentially there's water in animals and there's intracellular water within animals. So when you freeze that, it forms crystals just like it would anywhere else. And those crystals can puncture the cell membranes. So when you thaw the animal, it'll look like it has fluid everywhere, edema everywhere, you know, but knowing that it was frozen, you can kind of look past that and move forward. It doesn't do some artifact microscopically as well. But again, I can kind of look past that and I still have some good cellular detail. But those are some things that you can do. So generally, I say, if you can get it to me within 48 hours, let's just refrigerate it. If it's going to be longer than 48 hours, you should probably freeze it to kind of mitigate the post-mortem degradation of the animal.
1: Okay, that is really good to know because that is something that people are always curious about. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was there was a pathologist from Michigan State who did a session at an ADGA conference once. And he said to get the sample to them as quickly as possible. And he showed a picture of an elephant uh, out in the desert that looked half decomposed already. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Those recommendations are with like real life factored in because not everybody can do things immediately right away. You know, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Get it as fast as you can, but with practical realities in place within 48 hours refrigeration after 48 hours freeze it, and we'll find when it gets here, it'll delay the, our examination a little bit, but at least, you know, we still have some tissue to examine.
1: And if they're mailing it in, should they mail with an ice pack or anything like that? Or if it's, how yes. they do that?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of different things. So animal owners can't send things directly to us. That would be through the veterinarians because at least at Illinois, our clients are the referring veterinarians and the clients of the veterinarians are the owners. Um, but yeah, no, definitely putting an ice pack to keep things cool uh, will help. If you're submitting formal and fixed stuff, you don't really need to do that. Just make sure it's in a leak proof containers and double backed and stuff like that. But yeah, you can put things on ice, especially if it's like fresh tissue that you're sending.
1: Is there anything else that people need to know about taking care of the body or anything like that in terms of getting the best results? E-propsy? It's really
0: time is of the essence. So if you lose an animal, especially in a production setting, you know, you want to get the vet out there pretty quickly. It's not always possible. Or at least call your vet and ask what to do and say, hey, I'm not sure. I kind of think I want an e Can I just bring it? to my local lab. I mean if you live in an area that has a local lab which not nearly everywhere does. Or, you know, can we start getting the animal submitted so we can have a postmortem examination? But yeah, timing is probably the most important thing and being rather fastidious um there are, you know, clinicians in hospitals that realize it's not a practical thing for them to be able to get it there quickly. So so those clinics tend to just freeze the tissue and kind of understand that the pathologist is going to be a little bit hindered working through artifacts, you know, that arise from that freezing and thawing.
1: Okay, great. And I also want to make sure that we point out that you're not going to get an answer 100 percent of the time.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. But especially for abortions. Abortions, I would say it's like 10 to 20% of the time, I guess, because there's a lot that goes into it, right? And we don't always have all the pieces, the dough. Ate the placenta last night, and you know, half of the diagnostic lesions are in there. There's a lot of things, but yeah, no, we don't always arrive at an answer. We're not going to be able to tell you everything because we don't know everything yet, especially in veterinary (laughs) medicine. But we're also not going to lie to you either. You know, we're not going to tell you that there's something there that isn't. But yeah, I would say overall, I probably find an answer at about 80 to 85% of my necropsies. So there is some percentage there where it's don't know. but
1: Yeah. And even in the ones where you don't get a definitive answer, you are able to rule out things a lot of times. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's another great thing to point out is because that diagnostic information can be just as useful. Well, I don't really know what's going on, but I can tell you that it's not an infectious disease, or I can tell you that it's not a malignant cancer that's going to Wreak havoc on the animal's body, or something like that. So, yeah, there are a lot of times when it's just as good to say what it isn't than what it is.
1: Yeah. I know when I was first building my herd, we had a lot of problems with parasites and copper deficiency, both. And so we were losing a lot of goats for both reasons. And for whatever reason, I maybe I just got really paranoid and thinking it can't be something so simple as these two things. And I really started to worry that maybe it was Yoni's or something. And it was really comforting to me to have the vet that I was working with at the university say, no, it is not Yonis. Like, <laughs> your goat does not have Yonis. Like it would be really hard to miss Yonis on an E-Craft C. Like we, <laughs> we would know that if that's what it was.
0: Yeah, definitely. And Yonis in particular has a very, very particular and specific lifestyle. So, you know, in animals under, you know, a year and a half, two years of age, I know it's not Yonis because it doesn't come into being, you know, or causing disease. Until they reach adulthood, they contract it when they're young, but it takes a while to develop the actual clinical signs and symptoms that you see from the disease.
1: Yeah. Anything else people need to know about necropsies?
0: As far as like owners and submitting things, you know, there's a lot we can do and there's a lot we can't do. You know, generally our goal is to get an answer and to provide a service that can be invaluable at times. And so it's a really good thing. It's a really rewarding career, especially if you have interest in science and if it comes to you naturally, this is a great career. Like I knew about pathologists before I went to vet school, but my understanding of them was they were these kind of like mythical beasts that live in South San Francisco and work for pharmaceutical companies. You know, that's a big area of employment for us is in pharmaceuticals and research and stuff like that and drug development. But it wasn't until I was actually in vet school and I started being exposed to the pathology in class and stuff like that, that I realized that, wow, this is great. They kind of call pathologists the specialist for specialists, you know, because I'm kind of, not completely, but kind of the end of the road with being able to get a diagnosis and an answer. So yeah, I mean, it's a great tool that's available to animal owners everywhere.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no
0: problem. I was happy to be here. This is my first podcast, so
1: awesome! I'm
0: very excited and very happy to have tell you readership or listenership about necropsies and animals.
1: And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lovegoatspodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.